uh, from a kind of drunken conversation at the Tropfest after party to a... Uh... Well, you were drunk, Alistair, obviously. I was very sober. <laughs> yes, no, um, you, you were sober uh... and straight. And uh, <laughs> um, I was being rude and stealing glasses from the bar exactly. and pretending that they were Tropfest exactly. awards. I actually did that. Uh, um, so you have uh, one of the most prolific careers as an actor of anyone I've, I've ever met, and that was kind of only reinforced as I was doing my research for this, um, for this podcast. And you actually you started your career when you were about eight years old on set of The Sullivans. No, no. Uh, well, actually, I started my career when I was eight, and I guess, um, yeah, the, I did the Sullivans when I was ten. Yeah, so I was sort of doing mainly TV commercials um, in Adelaide um, from from the age of eight, and uh, and then yeah, the Sullivans was kind of the main, the first main thing that I did. Yeah. Wow. And what was that experience like for you as a as a kid, if you can remember? Um, kind of stepping on set was it kind of a sense of wonderment or was it more like this is just a a job or what was that like um I think it kind of became like just a job after doing it for a while but definitely wonderment to start with it was um yeah I I I was I found it all incredibly exciting I, I watched a lot of tv as a kid um and I watched you know all the different sort of series that were on at the time and and so I was pretty starstruck when I was first doing it. I kind of couldn't believe that I was meeting all these people that I'd seen only uh, on TV as these characters up until then. And now I was meeting them and working with them and becoming friends with them. And um, yeah, my whole kind of, my whole memory of that time is a positive one. I, I, I had a really lovely time um, for the, for the, you know, two or three years I was acting as a, as a kid on, on, TV series. It was, um, yeah, I, I, I'm sure it was partly because people made sure that, uh, you know, I was wrapped in cotton wool to, <laughs> to some degree, but I, I didn't see uh, or hear or uh, get involved in anything that uh, has scarred me in the slightest. It was just a purely um, great, great memories for me. Hello to the coming up next work, to the good people out there listening. I'm Alistair Marks. This is my podcast, Coming Up Next, and I am coming to you from Los Angeles in the United States of America. And boy, howdy, am I excited to bring you this week's ramble. You may know this gentleman from his work on Justified. You may know him from the feature film The Little Death. You may know him from his role on Love My Way. He is one of the most prolific actors I have had on this show. My guest this week on Coming Up Next, Damon Herriman. Over to you, Al. Yes, I did just throw to myself. And was acting something that, uh, obviously, you probably didn't have a lot of time to formulate opinions about what you did or didn't want to do since you started at eight but was yeah. it was it something that you were uh, passionate about, or, or was it something that just kind of happened? A bit of both. I mean, I I don't think yeah, I, you probably can't really be passionate about acting at eight, but mm. you, you can certainly do it and enjoy it. Um, I was, um, 
you know, making up characters and, and putting on voices and pretending to be old men and all that sort of stuff that some kids do uh, at that age. And so, you know, the idea of getting into that um, and starting, you know, getting an agent and, 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 and auditioning for things all seemed pretty fun to me. Um, uh, you know, it was my, my dad that kind of took the initiative, I guess, and, and uh, called up an agent. Um, we were living out in Alice Springs for a while when I was really little and um, we were going to be moving back to Adelaide, which is where I was born. And um, my dad had, had sort of noticed this interest in, in me playing characters and so forth. So he, he was trying to work out how to, what to do about it when we back, went back to the big smoke being Adelaide and uh, <laughs> the big church, um, uh, exactly. And um, what he ended up doing was writing to Peter Weir, who uh, you know, obviously legendary, iconic Australian film director, mm. who at that time was known for Picnic and Hanging Rock, and I think The Last Wave had probably come out. And um, that was kind of the most famous kind of person that my dad had heard of. So he somehow tracked down an address, wrote to him, and said, "What should my son do? We're moving to Adelaide." what's your advice to get it to, for him to get into acting? And Peter Weir wrote back and I still have the letter actually. And, um, and said, you know, go and see, try and get a, a meeting with this agent there. And it was the only agent in Adelaide at the time. Uh, and, um, uh, I ended up getting a, a meeting with her and she took me on and that's sort of where it started. And I, I ended up doing lots of ads and the Sullivan's, um, was the, as far as I can remember the first actual, acting audition that I had outside of TV commercials. Um, uh, that was the first time I was actually going for a role in some kind of scripted narrative drama. Yeah, wow. And that would have been, what, about 1980? 1980 it was. Yeah. Wow. And, and do you remember something I love talking to people about on this show is that kind of first moment um, in time, if there is a singular moment when you performed in front of people perhaps friends or family or something as a young person and you kind of got that spark that feeling you know the acting bug or whatever you may call it that kind of has has driven you to pursue this as a career I don't remember that moment and I, probably because I first did that when I was really little you know I was probably five or six yeah, yeah. Um, but I do vaguely remember doing you know putting on big old coats and and kind of hats and walking canes and things and pretending to be members of the family and that type of stuff <laughs> and enjoying the fact that everybody was laughing. Um, there's certainly no one moment, but I, I, I guess I did get a, a kick out of that to some degree. Um, weirdly, uh, ironically, that's probably the part I like least now is, is the fact that everyone's looking at you while you're doing it. I, I, probably much more happily um you know be someone invent filmmaking where you're just alone in a room but that probably wouldn't really work <laughs> it's not particularly practical no no um so you started working quite solidly um as you were saying from uh, the age of eight and or ten and you worked uh for a number of years um in in a whole lot of different shows and then you decided that you wanted to finish high school. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it was a, a collective decision with your family. Uh, but 
I, I was kind of struck by this idea that you would that you would go back to school, finish your formal education, and then when you came out of high school, you decided not to go to a drama school, but rather get your education and be available on set and in practical ways. Yeah, yeah. It just um, it just uh, the idea of going to a drama school, which is a, you know certainly then pretty much a three year commitment. Um, didn't really appeal to me because I thought, well, that's three years that I could be doing uh, some amazing job. You know, I could be doing a couple of awesome plays or I might get a film role or I might, you know, be, there might be some incredible miniseries. All these things that you couldn't do if you were, say, at NIDA for three years. So it was never a case of thinking I didn't need to go. Um, it was just I... I guess I hoped that I, based on the the fact that I'd already worked as a kid, that I could sort of slip back into it and and keep doing it. Um, and and you know, so from the age of eighteen, when I was back out there looking for work again, that I could play roles that eighteen, nineteen, twenty year olds would be going for, rather than missing those years because I was in a drama school. Mm. And you know, looking back, there were definitely things that I made in that time that. Um, that I wouldn't have got to do if I was at um, a drama school. I mean, the big steal comes to mind. I shot that when I was 19. So had I left high school and gone to a drama school, I never would have been in that film. And that's a really uh, fond memory for me that I got to do that film and, and, you know, work with Ben Mendelsohn and Claudia Carvin and Steve Bisley and, and all these other great actors and, um, and work with Nadia Tass and David Parker on, on, on who, who had, you know, I was a massive fan of their film Malcolm and, Things so things like that. I go well. I'm 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 glad I have that um, on my CV now, um, uh, rather than having missed out on those years. Mm, and you know, it's quite a pivotal moment for you, I'm sure, in uh, in your career. And and uh, to the best of my knowledge, you probably would have had an outstanding education uh, from those earlier years when you were working on set as a child actor, and you know, in those, in that kind of 18 to 21 year old bracket, I'm sure you took that kind of education even further. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think certainly working with other actors who are good um, and directors who are good uh, is, is, I mean, I, I can't compare it with going to acting school because I never did, but I'm sure it, um, th- there's an incredible amount of value there. Um, whether it's as good or the same or better, I don't know. But I, I absolutely learned a lot from um, the other actors that I got to work with in that time. And um, yeah, I, I think that it's it's not the same as going to an acting school, but it's definitely an acting school in its own kind of way for sure. Mm. Um, and you mentioned the uh, the big steel as. Um as one of the kind of standout films that you did at that kind of age. Um, what was it What was it like kind of stepping into that? Because that's quite an iconic Australian film. I'm actually looking at it in my DVD collection right now. Right. Um, and I, I was very fortunate to work with Steve Bisley as a director when I was 20, 21 or 22. Wow. Um, and, you know, working with people people like that of that kind of ilk that kind of generation um really makes uh a a real a real pleasure and a real joy um what was that experience like for you as as an 18 year old 
Oh, it was amazing. I'd never done a film and I'd been acting for um, 10, 11 years at that point. And um, I'd always wanted to do a film. You know, it's, it's, there's something very, um, there's a romance to, to the idea of being in a, a feature film that's going to play at the cinema. And, and um, I'd also, you know, I was a big fan of Nadia Tass and David Parker, who'd made Malcolm and Ricky and Pete up to that point. And, and when I got the role in that film, that was certainly would have to be up there with uh, the best sort of career phone calls I've ever had. <laughs> I, I was absolutely over the moon. I couldn't believe I was going to be in it. I knew Ben and Claudia's work, uh, Ben from um, The Year My Voice Broke and uh, Claudia from High Tide. Um, so I was incredibly excited to work with them. I'd worked with Steve Bisley uh, when I was 10. He played my dad in a miniseries called The Patchwork Hero for the ABC. So it was exciting to work with him again. Um, I, it, and, and the whole thing was amazing. It was just awesome. I was living in Sydney at the time, but we shot it in Melbourne. So it was just a complete adventure going down there um, as, you know, a, a young adult um, out on the town on my own, you know, and working with these great people on a, on a, on a really cool script um and you know it's it's the film did pretty well it didn't do exceptionally well but it's certainly become a film that everybody seems to have seen since then you know it it it, it was a big dvd hit i think and uh, uh still to this day people tell me oh that's you know my favorite australian films that's it's cool mm, it's very yeah. cool i remember when i when i was working with steve i hadn't um i hadn't seen it but it was one of the films that i watched as research and then whenever I would be speaking or in conversation with people and I'd be talking about um, that Steve Bisley was in this film that I was making, they'd always, The Big Steel was one of the first things that they'd reference um, with him. It's, I think it kind of bordered on that Ozploitation kind of era without being in that era. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I don't know if you can hear. There's like there's some pretty wild music coming from uh, above my apartment. <laughs> I can I can hear that. It's not bothering me unless it's bothering you or, or your your listeners. Um. Uh, well, I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure if my microphone's picking it up or not, but it's pretty uh, it's pretty intense. It's just stopped. Uh, I'm not sure if they're having some sort of weird afternoon um, reggae party or not. But yeah, right. Or maybe they just heard that this was the time you were going to be doing your podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did a letter drop and they yeah. thought this was the perfect time. Um, so after you did The Big Steel, I mean, you probably spent the better part of the next decade working pretty solidly and then you started uh, writing and, and shooting your own short films. Mm -hmm. um, what, what kind of inspired you to make that transition? I think I just started dabbled in, dabbling in writing. Um, I can't remember what. I think it was probably just I was getting ideas for little stories or scripts. And I was a massive Seinfeld fan at the time. And I was so impressed with that writing, I remember. And and, um, and I think Tropfest probably inspired me to a large degree. I, I think the first Tropfest I saw was 95. It was still in Victoria Street outside the Tropicana Cafe at that point. Oh, wow. Um, old school yeah yeah and I think two years after that uh, or maybe a, actually a year after that uh, I wrote a, a short film um, and acted in it uh, my friend Will Usick directed called They uh, which got into the 97 Tropfest finals um, which was incredibly exciting mm. and uh, 
and then we made another one uh, in '97, which got into the '98 finals. Wow! Um, which was um, yeah, it, which was uh, which had a, a, an 18-year-old Rose Byrne in it actually. Huh. Um, that one was called The Date, and uh, yeah, so I kind of got quite interested in writing then and a little bit into directing. I I co-directed the second Trop film and. Over the next, I guess, 97 to 2005, I made, wrote and or directed about, I don't know, eight shorts or music videos, things like that. And then I guess that kind of coincided with me heading over to America uh, around 2005 and my writing, directing CV has pretty much come to a halt since then <laughs> um, just because I, I guess I've my spare time that I would have had before where I was getting excited and into writing and directing, I've, I've ended up going and spending it over there instead, spending that time over there. Mm, it's pretty, it's pretty wild uh, and, and amazing. Um, that kind of transition that you made around that time. Um, and it all started with, uh, with the house of wax. It did. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, I sort of was working, you know, on and off in the nineties doing, you know, I was doing a bit of theater then and I'd do the occasional, um, TV job, usually just episodes of things. Um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't crazily busy in the nineties, but it was reasonably solid. Um, then early two thousands. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, work, I look, I had a lot of gaps in work pretty much from my twenties to my early thirties. Um, and um yeah then then the kind of first sort of really good job that came along after feeling like i wasn't really getting much at all was love my way um which was around 2003 mm. and um that that was a a wonderful experience incredible scripts incredible directors incredible actors it was just to get to work with all those people was um yeah i just felt so lucky and uh I didn't even know when we were making it how good the show was going to actually be and what a great response it was going to get. But mm. I knew it was good. Um, and then, yeah, around the same time, House of Wax came along, which was an American horror film shooting in Queensland. And there was one um, reasonable size role, you know, um, wasn't one of the leads, but it was a decent role that was uh, going to be cast out of Australia. All the other lead, all the lead roles were cast from America. And this was this kind of southern redneck character and up to that point in Australia, uh, even though I'd always wanted to be able to go for a big, a wide variety of characters, I never got auditions for a wide variety of characters. I was always going in for characters like, well, I mean, my character in Love My Way and my character in The Big Steel, they're 15 years apart, but they're virtually the same guy. It's yeah, kind right. of like ner nerdy best friend with glasses. <laughs> so I had, had no problem going for those roles. but anyone that was meant to be tough or edgy or, you know, drug addict or a psycho or anything like that, I would usually just not be able to get an audition, let alone get the role. I just wouldn't, they wouldn't see me because they would say I wasn't right. Uh, the irony being that that seems to be all I play now, but, um, <laughs> typecast um, in the other direction. Yeah. 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 Well, certainly, I think I guess that was the thing about going to America is you, you sort of starting with a clean slate and no one knows you. Mm. And um, so you could go for those roles and they didn't have any preconceptions. Um, so um, House of Wax came along and I got an audition for that, which was unusual, as I say, because it was this very kind of gross, you know, inbred deliverance style 
um, redneck with um, rotten teeth and um, and I got an audition for that and ended up getting that role. So that 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 uh, I guess that getting that role kind of changed my whole career really because it was it was shooting that and then going over to America for the premiere of that that got me um, an agent over there and then had me kind of yeah feel inspired to um, give it a try to get work over there, which I was never hugely confident of happening. I it wasn't, you know, I've never been one of those people who's like, yeah, I'm going to get in there and show them and, you know, <laughs> just wait till you see me, baby. I mean, I, I'm kind of like a bit half glass, a glass half empty with, with my career stuff. I was like, well, I'll go there just so I can say I've tried, but it's not going to work out. Mm. And I, I mean, I guess I would say that that's more being realistic than pessimistic. I just thought, well, you know, I was by this time I was about 35. I'm like a 35-year-old average-looking character actor um, who has really no no credits apart from 10 minutes in a horror movie mm. that Americans are going to know. So why would anything happen, you know? Um and I, as I discovered, I was right for a good number of years. I, I went over there and, um, yeah, it was, it was tumbleweeds for a very long time. Mm. I'd, I'd love to backtrack just for a moment to, sure. um, to love my way because that was, uh, I'm, I'm, I've spoken to a few people on here like uh, Samuel Johnson and Damian Walsh Howling about, you know, Secret Life of Us and Underbelly and how there was this kind of feeling it was one of those stars aligning kind of jobs where everyone um, just clicked and everyone got along and it was a great cast and a great crew. And I feel like Love My Way was possibly another one of those kind of um, jobs. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Everybody, there was a lot of love on that set. You know, everybody felt... It was, it was just such, such an unusual uh, thing to work on. I mean, it doesn't... I guess by today's standards, it doesn't feel that unusual, but there was just a looseness to it. You know, their scripts were absolutely brilliant and so raw and real. And the performance style was also very raw and real. And there was a just a very relaxed nature to it that made it feel like it was rooted in a in the real world. And um, yeah, it was just something about it that, that, you know, the four leads that they cast were all perfect, incredible directors, and the writing was just sensational. And I, I um, you know, I think people really emotionally invested with those characters. It was like the audience felt like they were their friends. And, uh, you know, that that's, um, doesn't happen too often, and I, I, I don't know if it had, had happened to that extent at all up until that point. Maybe Secret Life of Us was a, you know definitely in the same same area you know had, had, it was kind of like this was the 30 something ver- version of the 20 something secret life of us yeah yeah um and was this the kind of uh i don't want to say breaking point for you but was it where perhaps people started to pay attention to you a little bit more and, and you started to get a bit more recognized as um as an actor i guess in the public's eye well secret life uh, sorry i love my way was on Foxtel, and if you didn't have Foxtel or you didn't get access to it through the DVDs, you didn't see it. So people seeing Love My Way, you know, certainly to, uh, now a lot more people have seen it, but at the time 
it had a fairly limited audience. So I didn't sort of feel like there was a lot of recognition in the public eye. You know, you would occasionally meet somebody who saw it, but um, it wasn't like I was suddenly getting stopped in the street or anything like that. Mm. Um, yeah, but um, I, I guess being, look, you know, being attached to things that are good, being associated with things that are good is is never a bad thing as an actor. You know, it... it, it uh, good work generally does you know begets other good work um and and vice versa so um it was a great yeah i i felt very very fortunate to be a part of that and it you know it came around at a time when as i say i hadn't been doing a hell of a lot and had been struggling to to find good jobs um or or jobs of any reasonable size you know um uh, other than just a few lines here and there so Getting a, even though that was only a supporting role on that show, it was still, it was, there were still some great, some fantastic uh, scenes that they wrote for that character. So, yeah, it was, it was just all in all a, a, a wonderful experience. Mm. And so then you, you made the move over to the States, as you were saying before. And what was it that really, um, was, was there a kind of moment when you were over there where things just started to click for you? Well, there are probably a couple of moments. The the first one was, I I because I, I never actually moved there, and I still don't really consider that I've moved there. But I do spend about <laughs> half the year there. Um, um, the first moment was probably the third trip I'd done there, and I'd done two trips prior to that, which were three months of three months each, and had really not had a lot of auditions at all, and hadn't even got close to anything, and was just feeling like, wow, this is this is kind of impossible you're such a tiny tiny fish in the ocean of of actors over there and there's no reason you know kind of realize very quickly that you kind of need an angle you need something that they're excited about like you're the guy from the film that was just on at Sundance or Khan or mm. you know or you're in a, an Australian film that everyone's talking about like Muriel's Wedding or Shine or Chopper but I didn't have anything like that I was I had a tiny role in a in a horror movie that 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 was not going to be a um an industry darling kind of film so um yeah i decided to do one more trip and and i and i was very happy to just do that one more trip and then leave it at that um and then i was you know gonna say well i did that i did three trips to the states and i could i could be uh you know sitting in my rocking chair in my 80s going oh, i tried that it just didn't work <laughs> i met a few casting directors yeah, I mean, I kind of, in my mind, the whole going there at all was just sort of regret insurance for me. It was like I didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't want to, it wasn't so much that I wanted to do it. I just wanted to not regret not doing it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, negative gear, that. Yeah, yeah. So then the third trip I did over there, um, I think it was only the second or third day back there. I got an audition for a guest role on a show called The Unit, which I had never heard of. It was a CBS drama. And I went in and auditioned, and it was to play this kind of hard-ass uh, army sergeant. And uh, the casting director, um, I did it for her, and then she said, um, cool, well, we'll get you back this afternoon to audition for David Mamet. What? And I, and I was like, well, that was my reaction. I was like, what? <laughs> Not the playwright, David Mamet the not the david mammoth she's like yeah this is his show wow what do you mean this what what she's like yeah he created this show this is his show he he doesn't usually 
um, write the episodes or direct the episodes, but he does sometimes. And in this episode, he's written and he's directing it. And so, Holy yeah, moly. we'll get you back to meet him this afternoon. And that moment, I think, changed everything because I kind of went, oh, I mean, that's not something that could have happened if I hadn't come over here. And um, I'm about to do an audition for David Mamet, whose plays and films I've loved, you know, and, and then I went and did the audition for him and then I ended up getting that role. So that was my first role that I ever did in the States. And so that that day... I guess has sort of informed the rest of the, the the last 10 years really, because had I not got that role um, and I if I hadn't got anything else in that trip, I was definitely not going to go back. I had no, no intention whatsoever. I thought that that's unrealistic to do that. So that, that, that made me go, okay, I can, I now went from thinking it's impossible for me to work here to thinking it's possible for me to work here. I didn't know to what extent, but, I just realized that, well, if I just got a role with David Mamet, that's, it's, you know, it's only two scenes in a TV series, but um, at least, at least it's, it's not impossible. So uh, I, I, you know, I was pretty sure then that I would make a couple more trips after that. Mm. What was the experience of working with him like? Um, awesome. Um, he, he was incredibly nice. Um, you know, fast-talking New Yorker. I was, I was pretty terrified. I thought, you know, I knew he he'd written books on acting. He'd he had <laughs> his own, you know, terrifying books on acting. Right, and you know, he 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 and William H Macy invented practical aesthetics. They have their own acting school. I mm. was here. I am untrained, thinking, oh, he's going to ask me all these acting questions. So I went out and bought his book. You know, um, true true and false, true or false. I can't remember mm. which one it's called. And. Um, you know, and read it before I started shooting, so I so I could be prepared if he asked me something I didn't know. And of course, he didn't ask me anything like that, and didn't talk about acting at all. <laughs> he only asks think, true or false questions. I, well, I think the only note was do it faster, um, which I kind of thought was funny because he's sort of known for his rapid fire dialogue. So mm. I was like, oh well, um, and that was that. And then I ended up doing another small role with him six months later on a film he directed called Red Belt, uh, which came out, which came directly from having done um, uh, that, um, that, that one episode. And then about uh, eight years after that, um, he got me to do a reading of his um, new play, China Doll, that he hadn't heard out loud and he just wanted to hear it with the director. And um, so that was a pretty pinch yourself kind of uh, mm. day too, because that was sitting in a, in a room in a hotel. Um, it was me, um, David Mamet, uh, the director who had just won the Tony award for best direction and the other actor who was Al Pacino. <laughs> so so uh, it was just a, his play was a two hander and, and Al Pacino was essentially, you know, had 80% of the dialogue, but um, I yeah I'm I was sitting there um doing, reading this new David Mamet play opposite Al Pacino which was um yeah still still kind of pinching myself. That's mind boggling. That. Yeah, it is. Was there was there anything like I, I imagine in the kind of uh, the downtime in that kind of scenario there'd be stories or anecdotes or, or things like that kind of shared. Was there anything that that stands out to you from that? Um, from from that particular 
day you mean or I guess yeah, either from that day or just from the 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 couple of times that you worked with um with David Mamet um oh boy it's 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 all a bit of a blur really um I just just that he's just an incredibly nice guy the day with doing that reading with Al Pacino is uh you know I I I wish I did, you know, had a hard drive in my brain that I could have recorded that all on to uh, remember it all incredibly well. But I think I was um, kind of in shock for the whole two hours. <laughs> but, but you know, I, I mean, I did, you know, I did think, well, this is going to be, I'm, I'm fascinated <laughs> as well as incredibly honoured and excited. I'm fascinated to to be acting opposite him and look in his eyes and, and see what that's like, you know, someone who is such a master like him, see if it's palpable in the room. And it, and it absolutely was. I mean, I was, he, I, I don't think I've ever seen somebody act so brilliantly with such ease. It just didn't seem to be any, any difficulty in it for, in it for him. Not that, not that you'd expect it would be, but it was just so, it was just so easy for him to be brilliant. Mm. It's just like whatever he said and did um however he looked it was just all perfect and you're just going wow it's in his body you know it's in him i don't know um you know it's one of those he's obviously one of those rare actors probably you know top five greatest screen actors of all time you know and then and, and there's 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 uh something going on there that you probably can't really learn mm. I'm I'm curious um, about what your what your thoughts are because you have had an incredible career and and you know as I said at the beginning it's been sustained over decades. Is there any kind of um, traits that you can think of that are consistent across people that you've met and that you've seen come, or perhaps you've seen people come and then fall off the radar? Uh, consistent traits that contribute to being able to sustain your career in that way. Um, yeah, I, I think, I don't know. Look, there are so many, I was going to say, I think being a decent person helps. I mean, obviously people being able to act, being good actors is, is very important to sustain a career. But I think also, um, you know, having a certain amount of decency is important, treating others well. You know, there are definitely stories that we all hear of people who are assholes to work with, mm. but they they usually don't work forever if they're assholes. It seems, you know, they that 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 there comes a point where people get a reputation where you know it's just too much effort, it's too much work, it's not worth it. There are other actors that can do the same thing that do have the same level of fame or whatever that you can hire so um certainly the you know the the people that i walk away from having worked with that impress me are the people that are equal parts uh, you know talent um and and good people you know treat people that you just think are um that are just decent, you know, and, mm. and, and, and treat everybody well, but also incredible actors. When, when you see that combination and thankfully you see it most of the time. Um, yeah. They're the people that you, that you 
you want to work with and you come away talking about in in glowing terms mm. i guess it's a it's a combination of humility and confidence right yeah 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 um so after you after you did that um that gig with with david mamet how long was it before you um picked up justified justified i first did the pilot for that i think in 2009 so it was probably it was a while later it was maybe four three or four years after so in the meantime i'd done a couple of little guest roles on things um but yeah i mean you know enough to kind of feel like i you know was was getting bits and pieces mm. um but justified certainly changed a lot of things for me um that was initially just a character a guest role in a pilot and uh, there was no intention when i when i did that role that it was going to be a character that appeared again in the in the series but uh yeah, thankfully, um, it ended up, I think, being about 25 eps over the over the six years. Oh, that's amazing. Um, and one of the, you know, one of the one of my favourite characters I've ever played, um, without question. You know, this character Dewey Crow, who is a very hapless, very stupid um, uh, Southern guy, covered <laughs> covered in kind of you know white supremacist tattoos that he probably didn't even quite understand what they meant. I mean, it was. Um, and, and, you know, they wrote so well for that character. They really they really got the perfect line between, um, you know, a, a comic relief type of character but in a in a drama. I think they, um, they kind of pitched that perfectly well. And uh, every time I would get a script, it would be exciting to see what they had done with, with the character, you know, this time. Mm. What, were, um, what, what was your process of creating this character? Because obviously... If it was meant to be a, a, a kind of guest role or a cameo and it kind of built as the seasons went on to the point where the fifth season, a lot of it was actually about your character. What what was the process for you of uh, creating this human being to, uh, I guess, make him really stand out in that way? Look, I mean, the credit goes to the writers because he stood out on the page, really. I mean... Um, certainly, certainly, as it went on, more and more too. I guess that thing happens where they see what you do with it, and then you, you know, and then they write something even more um, uh, precise, and then you act that, and then they see what you do with that. So it's kind of a back and forth where eventually you end up with the the, the proper version of the character. And I guess that I feel like that version kind of came came into it at about season three. But I mean, initially, it's you know, it's it's a combination of reading the script and how the characters presented in the script, what they say and do. And then, you know, you get the hair and makeup and the costume and you're looking in the mirror at this guy that looks nothing like you really. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't sort of, um, overthink too much the way I'm going to play something. It just sort mm. of starts to feel right based on, that combination, you know, the, the character as written combined with um, the general tone of the show combined with the way you end up looking and, um, and yeah, you know, you kind of end up with something after that. But um, it was, it was great to be able to do that role for, for so many years because it is like putting on an old pair of shoes that, you, you know, just feel right. And you, you know, 
exactly what to do by the time you're three, four, five seasons into something like that. You and 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 they've written it as I say to suit you as well. So everything kind of um, everything comes together really nicely after after having done it um, for a couple of years. And it was always a great a great feeling to go back to that show. And I never wanted to be unavailable. Because I was never under contract to that show, because they don't ever contract you if you if you're just doing a recurring role like mm. that. Um, so it was always a case of, gee, I hope I'm available if they write another episode <laughs> for me, because 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 that's a gift, you know, getting to play that role is a gift. Mm. So I guess um, my understanding of what you're saying is quite an instinctive and an in, and an intuitive interpretation, which then. Uh, you you just re- you just have a great trust of your own instincts and ability to do that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, having a trust of my own instincts and abilities, I'm not sure if I'd go that far. I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm very doubtful of my own instincts and abilities, but I certainly um, I certainly don't have much else to go on. So yeah, I guess that's that's certainly what I I went with. Mm. And. So in, in the process of doing that, as you were saying before, you, you kind of spend half your time in Australia and half your time in the States. Um, what, what was it kind of like coming back uh, after doing a few seasons of that? And did, did you start to notice a change in not only people's perception of you, but how you perceived the industry in, in Australia as compared to in America? I don't know if it changed how I perceived the industry here. Um, I definitely noticed that I was able to get um, seen or considered for other more interesting, better, different roles. Um, uh, that's been a great sort of uh, um, yeah. That's been a that's been a great part of working over there. Is is the um, what it's opened up over here in terms of opportunities. I, I was, as I said, you know hard to break away from the the nerdy uh, spectacled um, best friend kind of vibe um, and suddenly you know I was I'd played you know Dewey Crow who's this sort of southern redneck and I was playing meth addict in Breaking Bad in an episode and mm. so playing playing characters that um, that I was never getting seen for over here I think the combination of of just the perception of that that comes with getting work in America combined with the type of roles I was getting, it definitely um, made a, a, a marked, a marked difference uh, in terms of now being able to audition for roles I couldn't before um, or being considered for roles that I would never be considered for before. So that's been, that's been great. You know, I, there's no, there's no downside to that, that part of it at all. Um, and uh yeah, so I'm 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 really I feel lucky that I've sort of had that that opportunity to work over there, both for the doors that's opened over there, but also for the doors that's opened back home. Mm. What was uh, just quickly what what was what was it like walking onto the set of Breaking Bad? Look, at the time, it it it, it I didn't know a lot about it. I mean, weirdly, it was season four, which sounds like it's really well and truly into the show but it was only just starting to pop mm. in people's in the public's yeah, I remember perception I, I i'd heard of the show but i'd only heard of it because i'd auditioned for a couple of other roles i didn't know about it because everybody was talking about it and this is 2009 i think so 
um, uh, or 2010, maybe it was. Um, but anyway, uh, it was it was only when I told a couple of friends that I was doing it, and and they went, "Are you kidding me? Breaking Bad? That's my favourite show." I'm like, really? Oh, I don't know. I don't know anything about it. So wa- walking onto set was not like you would think it would be because it wasn't. It wasn't at that point. It was just starting to become the show that everybody was talking about and everybody was watching. Um, so yeah, I, it was just like going onto any set, and it was, you know, it was New Mexico. It was some crappy little rundown house, and and um, uh, the scene was with Aaron Paul, who's the nicest guy. Mm. And um, yeah, we just sort of did it. It was a one day one day shoot, and then and that was that. And uh, it, funnily, you know, it was only one scene, uh, not a particularly long scene. It was, you know, I guess a 90-second scene or something. But uh, it's probably to this day the thing that people mention, if they do happen to mention to me something that I've been in or something they've seen, it tends to be that. Wow. Leave a lasting impact. <laughs> yeah, well, I, it's just because that show's so massive, you know, that mm. it's, it's become such a... Um, such a you know a, a classic uh, and 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 so many people have seen it so i think just by association people are, get excited that you that you happen to have um had something to do in that particular show mm. i'm curious does that um does that and you know obviously the the reception that you get for your work in justified do those things make you feel as though you've you've achieved a level of success or is that kind of uh a more ambiguous kind of thing that you're constantly working towards. Um, yeah, no, it definitely is a is a really nice feeling. It's weird, like the there's a weird thing that happens where the the bar of your own bar of what you consider success kind of shifts as you do more stuff. Um, so I guess what I would have, you know, the ultimate the ultimate success I could have imagined um you know say 12 years ago would have been achieved when I did that guest role with David Mamet like that Mm. would have been like something I never could have imagined I can't believe I'm in America working with David Mamet on something that he's written how did how did I get here kind of thing um but then you know then you end up doing other jobs where um you you well, I guess that bar just shifts a bit because because then you you end up doing something um, uh, I don't know like Jay Edgar where I was working with Clint Eastwood for a week I'm like how the hell am I working with Clint Eastwood for a week this is insane <laughs> um, you know I've got a day working with Leonardo DiCaprio this is insane you know um, so those those kinds of you know, then that becomes something that you're like, well, I never could have imagined this. If I die now, I'm, I die happy because I never could have imagined doing this. And then, you know, um, I don't know. Look, I, I, I don't know if that makes sense, but it kind of the 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 um, point at which you consider yourself having re- achieved a successful or reached a successful point um, does shift a bit every time you 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 do it every time you I guess um, get a, a job that's really cool mm. um, but look you know there's no question I, I feel like um, uh, certainly um, with 
where things are now and the jobs that have come along in the last couple of years that uh, I don't feel I don't have any massive desire to achieve more than this. Like if it if it stays at this level with the sort of the these interesting jobs that are coming along with different interesting characters, mm. um, I am more than happy and the. 20-something version of me would be absolutely over the moon and gobsmacked. So I, I um, you know, obviously um, if, if something even more amazing came along, that would be great. But I don't I don't feel like um, if, if this was all I'd done and, and that was it, then I would certainly feel very happy with that. Mm, I think... Um... I think our definitions of success are constantly evolving and, as you say, shifting uh, idea. And I think if you assign success to something tangible, then it's less likely to be fulfilling. But if it's more of a, uh, like you say, it's you keep raising the bar or you you want to you know inspire other people or you want to make a difference in the in in this kind of area or sphere, then it just kind of grows and expands as you kind of take more and more steps up the ladder. Right. You just mentioned um, that you worked with uh, with Clint Eastwood and um, DiCaprio, who are one of my favorite actor directors and one of my favorite actors. I would love to uh, love to hear what that experience was like. Uh, awesome. <laughs> I wish I could dish some dirt, but it was uh, it, there was no dirt. It was just just brilliant. Um, um, yeah, you know, meeting Clint Eastwood. Obviously, you know, I'm I'm a, a you know I'm a child of the Dirty Harry kind of movies, and I've seen mm. his career pretty much you know through the 70s 80s and to today and um it's kind of yeah kind of can't believe that i was on set with him for seven days i mean the bit there are a couple of if you've seen the film anyone sees the film they're probably like how are you in it for seven days there were a couple of great uh, really well written um essentially two-hander scenes that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and my character had, which didn't end up in the film, unfortunately. Um, but that that probably explains why there's a little more um, shooting time than, you, than you'd expect. Mm. Um, but it was, yeah, they were both incredibly lovely. I mean, a big part of that, um, I think, uh, you know, a big part of the feeling on that set of everybody being lovely is the way Clint Eastwood runs his set, which is just a very quiet, gentle place where nobody's, you know, he has a kind of a rule about, about nobody making too much noise and shouting. And when they're going for a take, nobody yells out quiet, please. And um, it, it's, it's just already quiet. So there's no kind of, he doesn't like to create an atmosphere where the, the doing a take uh, part feels different from what's been happening before that mm. because then everyone gets on edge and suddenly start acting and he doesn't want to see that he wants it just to be very real and very relaxed so when you go for a take it doesn't feel that different from what was happening 10 seconds before you were doing a take it's pretty it just sort of suddenly before you know it there's a there's a, a clapperboard in front of your face and it's very quietly tapping in front of you and then and you go into the scene um but he was very lovely. He doesn't really give direction, um, which is a, you know, he's, he's sort of known for that. Um, I think I saw him give direction to one actor once in, in the whole seven days. Um, he's, which is a nice feeling, you know, you don't, in a way, you don't really want to be, uh, you know, you're already on eggshells enough to be on a set with Clint Eastwood. You don't really want to be also trying to remember the 12 notes that you were given. Mm. So the fact that you kind of have, 
free reign to an extent is a good feeling mm. and, and helps relax you. And, um, and DiCaprio was absolutely couldn't have been lovelier, you know, just a very relaxed, cool guy, you know, and that, that whole, that whole time I was just, uh, yeah, that was, um, very, very, very many times in that week where I was going, how, how am I here? You know, <laughs> there were times where, you know, there were the only people in my vision were Leonardo DiCaprio and Clint Eastwood. They were like, it was like a two shot from my eyes looking at them. And I was like, how am I standing in front of these two guys? This is crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, it was really, really, uh, really a great, great memory to have. Mm, I could imagine between that and Mamet Pacino, you've got a pretty, pretty good couple of uh, yeah, the, the, director combos. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> um, do you attribute that to any sort of luck, or are you? Do you have any sort of um, I don't know, uh, faith or spiritual kind of belief or practice, or is it is it more just something that you feel like? You're just in the right place at the right time. What's your kind of take yeah, on that? Yeah, I think it's – no, I, th I put it down to luck to a very large degree. I mean, I kind of have this theory that, you know, the best actor in the world is probably someone no one is ever going to hear of. Mm. Um, it, they're probably, you know, doing community theatre in some kind of small little um, – small little um, theatre in the back, back streets of Poland or something. You know, I, I, I think, you know – the, the, there are obviously, um, you know, the, the, there's no question that being able to act is a very important part in in being successful as an actor. But so much luck and so much being at the right place at the right time um, is it comes into it. And, you know, so much to do with perception, just that thing of the work opportunities that I've had in Australia since working overseas under coincidence, that's that's because the perception of me as an actor has changed um, through doing those other jobs. But I'm actually the same actor. I'm the same guy that was here before I went to America. Mm. It's just the perception's changed. So that's luck to to a degree. The luck of actually getting the work over there has led to me getting work back here. And um, uh, you know, the luck of doing the pilot of Justified and it getting picked up. You know, most pilots don't get picked up. Mm. If that hadn't got picked up, that led to so many other opportunities. And well, I might not have got to do most of my other jobs if that hadn't got picked up. So, um, no, I, I do tend to think uh, it's all pretty. Uh, it's all pretty um, random, and um, you know, there are there. Are, there are friends of mine who I just think are extraordinary actors who uh, don't work enough at all, and um, they get down to the final two, you know, all the time. And you just go, "That's that's just that is just bad luck," because mm. you 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 have to be good enough to get to the final two that many times, but you just you know for whatever reason aren't cracking it and they and they go and they see themselves often as a as their careers failing and I'm like do you have any idea how hard it is to be in the final two for any for a particular <laughs> role out of all, out of pretty much all the actors in you know the english speaking actors in the world are going going for that particular role mm. and 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 you've been down to the final two or three 12 times you know that's that puts you in an incredibly um 
uh, fortunate position. But from their perspective, it's like, yeah, but I'm not working. Mm. So I, I do feel incredibly lucky. I, I um, um, there's no uh, there's no false modesty in there. I genuinely feel extraordinarily lucky, mm. and um, you know, and I'm just glad that I kept kept doing those trips back overseas after those first couple because if I hadn't then I think um, you and I wouldn't be having a chat now <laughs> there'd well, be nothing to talk about <laughs> well we could we could have spoken about your Tropfest film we could we could have had a chat about my continuing career um, making Tropfest films which I probably would have been doing actually mm. because I would have had the, the you know more of that time on, on my hands then you could have been in my previous podcast with Tropfest finalists right uh, exactly uh uh, but I mean, to, just to go back and touch on what you were saying about things, about about luck playing a factor, but which I which I agree with you. Um, but I also think there's, you know, there's there's luck and there's being in the right place at the right time. But there's also being prepared for those moments and those opportunities and kind of and staying sharp. And I'm sure your friends who um, have been getting down to the last few do uh, stay sharp and are prepared. And I guess could possibly be inspired by your persistence um i, I don't, i'm not sure who they are but... Inspi- inspired slash really annoyed i don't know <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i'm not sure um but yeah i th- i think uh, i think there's a lot to be said for you know being really diligent with your work uh, your work ethic and and always being prepared to and, and positioning yourself in the right place to get those lucky moments and those lucky breaks yeah, look, and I'm sure part of it is too, you know, a lot of the people I'm thinking of when I'm talking about um, those friends are in a category of, um, you know, kind of leading man or, um, you know, leading woman type type roles. And there is just a lot more, and I guess I'm talking more in America um, for this example, um, just a lot more of those roles around, uh, but also a hell of a lot more competition for those roles. Like, you know, of all the actors in the world that go to um, Hollywood to become an actor or become famous or whatever the reason they go, the vast majority of them are going um, for those good-looking, you know, romantic lead-type roles. Mm. And I'm, you know, a little guy who plays um, a whole variety of kind of odd-looking characters. And... There are less of those roles, but I think there are way less other actors going for those roles too. So I think um, I do have, you know, people who are kind of going for the sorts of roles I play do have a slight um, numbers advantage over over the, um, you know, absolute plethora of uh, chiselled, uh, good-looking <laughs> leading men that uh, are just a dime a dozen, you know. Mm. Yeah, for sure, and I think you know there's something to be said to finding your niche and um, and and sticking it out because there are uh, that those kind of good-looking chiselled guys who don't necessarily play the leading men; they find other sort of avenues in. Totally. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, I want to just say thank you again, Damon. I really uh, have really enjoyed this this conversation with you and um, I feel a great privilege for uh, for having been able to interview you um, after our very brief meeting at the Tropfest after party. Where you were incredibly where drunk. I yes, was just obnoxious yeah, to yeah, yeah. no end. I've been blacklisted from any Sydney <laughs> jobs. <laughs> there is one last question that I ask every guest. Um, 
which I would love to ask you as well because then I wouldn't be able to say I'd asked every guest if I didn't ask you. Right. Uh, and th- that question is, what makes you silly? What makes me silly? Wow. Um, <laughs> I guess being around the right dynamic with the right group of friends, I think. You know, there are certain friends who I feel very silly around. Um, and I like, and they tend to be my favorite people. Um, there are other acquaintances or other friends or, that I have or family that I have whose company I completely enjoy. But there are, you know, there, there's that those particular friends where it brings out the silly in you and you bring out the silly in them. And, um, yeah, that's the, I feel particularly um, close to those people, and and I'm always happy to uh, have their company or run into them because um, there's something about that that is, yeah. I mean, I'm not, yeah, I'm not. Uh, it's kind of the opposite of of Ernest, I guess. And I'm not, I'm not really a big fan of Ernest, unless it's you know, unless it's there's a serious topic to be discussed or whatever, but people are just always earnest for the hell of it. Um, and you kind of can't kind of get them to crack a smile, uh, tend to be, uh, not people I hang out with a hell of a lot. <laughs> I hear you. Do you have, uh, anything that comes to mind when you think about being a little bit silly with your friends? Uh, you mean like a particular example of something mm. we would do or? Yeah. Oh God! I mean, I back when I was younger, I used to do all sorts of silly things, like call up radio stations and record the calls, pretending to be, um, you know, different people. And <laughs> I actually, uh, when I was twenty, I don't think I've ever said this publicly, but it's it's a while ago now. I um I called up uh, John Laws, and I still have the recording of it, pretending to be an old lady who asked him what the word head job meant <laughs> said I'd heard, overheard my grandson saying it on the phone and I couldn't find it in the dictionary <laughs> and uh, and uh, he, uh, he he enjoyed that call it was a pretty it was pretty fun and uh, to this day as far as I'm aware he thinks that he thinks that was an old lady because I, I knew someone I ran into or met somebody about six months after that who had worked for him at 2UE at the time and said, oh, he absolutely thought that was an old, old lady. <laughs> um, so I, he may well to this day think that's an old lady. I don't know. I've never actually met him, but I, I, I guess I should, um, I should probably let him know if I ever do <laughs> come across him. Well, the good news is he listens to this podcast. So Perfect. Well, yeah. Now he knows. Now he knows. You must do a killer old lady voice. <laughs> Uh, well, I did when I was twenty. I don't know. I don't know if it's. Uh, it might be a bit more redneck now. Maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's probably just the old part isn't as hard to do. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's just lady. It's just lady. It's just me doing lady now. Then. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much, Damon. I really appreciate you taking the time. No worries, Alistair. It's a pleasure. <laughs>